0: Welcome to the village, uh, again, just want to echo that, uh, particularly if you're our guest for the first time, we are glad you're here, you could worship and uh, be here together, it's a special, I know some of you are probably here for the baptism, so uh, we're going to get to that in a little while. I want to, before we go into the um, sermon for today, I did want to share a little bit as we continue and ask, I'm going to ask um, Dave and Amanda Thompson to come up, We want to, what we do every so often, we introduce new partners of the church, so they are, and they're in their... Um, Sunday best clothes here. This is how they usually dress everyone. They're getting baptized later as well, so that's why. Uh, um, so we, every so often, when we talk about partnership at, uh, at the village, it's these, I mean, as, as spiffy and good-looking as they are, they're no better than anyone here, uh, but they're folks who've uh, gone through the process of committing, saying, uh, we belong to this church. We, we believe in the mission of what's going on at the village, and we want to be committed to that. So we have, um, we've obviously met with them, heard their story, and we are excited to introduce you or introduce them before the church as new partners. So let me pray for them really quickly here. So join me in praying for them. Lord, we thank you for this new family, Lord, even being married just within a couple of weeks here. What a joy And in that same way, uh, joining this family here at the village. And as husband and wife being able to journey together to proclaim you through their service, through their leadership, through their desire to make you known in whatever ways you would call us to do this. So I pray for them as they give of themselves, you would honor that as well and continue to work in their lives, drawing them closer to you, Lord, so that others might see your glory in them. So we thank you for them and for their heart to um, make this their family, their home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Yeah, you can clap. It's all right. <clears throat> Yeah, we, we're going to do um, baptisms in a little, little bit, but we want to, um, and uh, we're going through the series through the book of Acts, and we like to preach through the Bible here at the village as much as possible, and we come upon a passage um, in Ch- Acts chapter 4, so if you want, you can start to the turn there, but before we do that, this is, um, if you want to pick up the Bible, it's, it's uh, page 780 there, I think it'll also be up on the screen soon. But in, in my observation, as I look across the landscape, um, especially in the church world, sometimes there are efforts to make Christianity kind of a really relevant, popular message. And I got, you know, I got nothing as popularity. I mean, I don't want to be unpopular. That's, there's, I guess some people do, but that's not my desire. But sometimes we, we have this idea that we can make the Christian faith like a really popular one, like you know, like the more um, funny, cool stuff we can put on our screens or, you know, uh, maybe if we do like some like magic shows up on, say, let's make it really palatable and like really kind of cool to say we're a Christian. But the thing is, and again, I got nothing against cool or irrelevant or popular. The thing is though, Christianity by nature was never designed to be a popular religion. It, it just wasn't. I mean, when you got the leader and the founder himself, who's always talking about dying, like talking about like dying and he himself dies. I mean, that's not really like a mass marketing tool to draw people in. You tell people, "Yeah, you're going to have to die." And I, don't don't get me wrong, the message of Jesus is beautiful. There is something powerful there that has the power to draw those who are broken and wounded and and have been rejected by every other sort of thing to say, "Welcome on in. Come on in. This message is available for all." So it's beautiful, but by its nature, the message of Jesus Christ is offensive at the same time. And it just is. I mean, because ultimately what we're saying is this Jesus Christ, he loves you. But what is saying is without him, you're all going in the wrong direction. You're headed in the wrong path. You're headed to destruction. And and that's bad news. The good news is I'm here to rescue you. I died on a cross so that you wouldn't have to die to your own sin and suffer. Receive me. So that's good news. But it's offensive when you tell people, yeah, you know, the reason you need Jesus is not just to kind of improve your life a little bit or not just so you can get like a new car next week because that's what Jesus does, right? He's sitting in heaven. How can I get a new car for that person as long as they sow a seed? You know, that's what he does, right? Obviously, you know, no, I'm, we're not that kind of church. But, um, but it's offensive to say you're, you're a sinner. You're, you're going in a bad direction, and I'm your antidote. I'm your healer. I'm your rescuer. So it's offensive. And we see this beginning here in Acts chapter 4 in the life of this early church here. And we're going to go through this bit by bit. But if you look at, if you remember, if you were here last time, we saw Peter's message that he gave. You know, he, he and John, they healed this crippled man who had been crippled from birth. And then they healed. And then Peter, you know, using the opportunity, he just jumped into a sermon. And he, he, all, everyone was captivated, so he jumped into, you all want to know why this happened? Here it is. It's Jesus. He's the one who did it. He's full of power. And he goes into it. And it's interesting. I'm not usually those guys that say in the Greek. But, I mean, I I thought it was fascinating. In the Greek, the word for people, it's used, uh, it appears five times here before Peter's sermon and afterwards in a generally positive light. When it's talking about the people, they're in favor. They're happy. They're they're like, dig it. This is cool. Wow. Crippled man walking. Power of God. Awesome. And we see many even come to faith. The church goes from 3,000 men to 5,000 men. But the same word for uh, people, Laos, in in Greek, you see that just a little bit later on in the book of Acts. It's eventually used the same word but in in a different light as the people eventually turn against the church. The people turn against the church, and and the church is marked with persecution, um, including imprisonment, violence, and, and for some, even death. And as much as the church has changed over the past 20 centuries, I mean, I know they didn't do like video venues back in first century AD. Some things have changed. The one thing that hasn't changed for those who take seriously the call to follow Jesus is that um, there there is going to be resistance. There's going to be persecution, maybe. There's going to be objection to this message here. And all to say, it's a reminder for, for those who call themselves Christians, the church that if we're going to follow Jesus, one thing that's required is great boldness. We need great boldness. And I want to look at a few ways that that's demonstrated in this passage today. So I'm going I'm to start from verse 1 of chapter 4. And as they, and this is Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So it's fascinating. Again, verse 1 shows us that folks are paying attention to Peter and John. They like the message, and that's got those in power kind of nervous. Because they're interpreting a lot of what Peter's preaching as kind of anti-authority, anti-those-in-power. So you see here in verse 1, there's priests who are obviously in a position of power in the temple. And they're worried because the message seems to be saying, you know what? The authorities are not right here. We also have described in verse 1, the captain of the temple. This captain of the temple was the commander of the temple police force. And again, he was a member of one of the important priestly families. So again, another important person. Then you have the Sadducees. And these were, these were people who held prominent positions in the Sanhedrin, which was basically the Jewish ruling council. And these guys were particularly ticked because one of their core beliefs was there's no such thing as a resurrection. So Peter going hard here saying, yo, Jesus was, rose from the grave. So they're particularly upset here. And then it goes into verse five, describing further the next day of who's involved here. You see rulers and elders and scribes, and they constitute this Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And in the Sanhedrin, in this council, you've got the high priest, you got members of his family. you got Sadducees, Sadducees, Pharisees, Pharisees. Basically, a council of the governing and ruling body of the Jewish people in in both their civic and their religious affairs. So the men enlisted in verse 6 are even more specifically the executive committee of this council. Annas, he's he's called the high priest since this was a role that you held for life, even though officially he was not there anymore. His son-in-law Caiaphas, who's mentioned here, was now the high priest. Both of them with a lot of power. The John here might possibly be, scholars say, Jonathan, son of Annas, um, who was appointed high priest in 36 AD. Or it could have been Jonathan Ben-Zakai, who became president of the great synagogue after the fall of Jerusalem. You're like, okay, thanks for reading the phone book, Holmes. What's this all about? The point is, Peter and John are standing before a group of very powerful people here he they're standing before a group of, fo- of folks with a lot of standing and um i don't know if any of you have ever had to stand before like important crowds before uh, whether uh, whether it's for a hearing or whether maybe you did something you shouldn't have and you had to stand before important people um myself i got no problem talking in front of people right i mean i've spoken in front of hundreds and i'm i'm good with that i actually feed off it you know i get more excited you're like you're like, please don't let the church grow because he's going to blow up his head or something. But I, I get more excited, actually, the more people. But uh, recently, I was at a city council hearing because we've had some issues in our neighborhood with parking. So there was they're, they're talking about parking permits, and they asked me to come testify because they know we lead a church here, and, and this is a relevant issue for us. So, yo, I, I'm getting ready to get up in front of this thing. And, and man, and it doesn't help that the people who are listening to it are like five feet above you, right? That's how they do it. The power position, everyone's just elevated. It's like when you go into someone's business office and their, their chair is like two feet higher than yours. Like, yes, sir. You know, there's an automatic kind of physical thing about power, but I'm standing before them and I got that knee knocking thing going on. Like, I don't know if any of you ever, when you get up in front of people to talk, you start to feel that knee knocking, like your voice in your head. It sounds like, like that like stomach rumbling with like butterflies. I was feeling that hard. And I don't know exactly why, but I think there was something about, man, these are some important people who are going to make some important decisions. And, and, and I, don't, I don't know exactly what's that. I feel out of my element here. And, and I think there's something about that, right? Being in front of, quote, unquote, important people, it puts us in a certain kind of mindset. That's why verse 13 is so astounding here. And let me read again. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. This is significant here because they're used to people probably standing before the Sanhedrin and the council. Like, oh, no, I've done something wrong. And the, the civic and religious leaders, they're going to talk to me. They're going to give me a word. Oh, they're going I, and, to. And these two men, they don't care. They're like, yeah, we preach in the name of Jesus. Yeah, they're not afraid. They're bold. They're being told, hey, don't talk about this. And they keep talking about it. And and what it helps us to see is that the grace of Jesus, it transforms our view of authority. The grace of Jesus, it transforms the way we view those in power. As the scriptures tell us, God is not a respecter of persons. This does not mean we dishonor those who are in authority. So don't go, don't stop right now and go out. Oh, yeah, you know. Whatever the police, and, and I'm not saying that. It, I think the Bible clearly says, respect those who God has placed in positions of power in the government. You should be praying for your leaders instead of social media and why or how horrible they are. You should be praying for them. Um, and, and, I mean, in the church, for example, I think God has ordained authority in his elders, for instance. That authority is good. Um, but I think what I'm trying to say is that Peter and John, their boldness, it comes from the fact that they understand that God doesn't look at credentials the same way a man does. God doesn't look at people's credentials the same way you and I do. And I, w- I want to clarify here. I'm not, I'm not saying this as a point against, like, formal theological training. I'm not saying to say, see, the Bible says you shouldn't be going to seminary. Don't waste your money on learning the Bible because this is for every common, un- ed- you know, education is not important. I don't, think that's, I don't think that's true. I think we should get trained as much as we can. We should learn as much as we can. If you have the opportunity to study these things further, do it. Um, But I think we can say authority is not merely found in a position. Authority is not merely found in someone's credentials. Authority is not merely how many letters they have trailing behind their name that someone has said, you're an important person. You've got authority here. Authority is found in relationship. The nature of authority is found in relationship. Um, So having things listed on your spiritual resume is not bad. Being trained in different ways is not bad at all. But what's Peter and John's number one item on their resume? You see it at the end of verse 13 there. And they recognized, the leaders, rulers, they recognized that they, Peter and John, had been with Jesus. That's their number one item on their resume, not what they've studied, not degrees, what they've got, not, not how many years of school they've got. Their main thing that they point to as their credential is they have been with Jesus. They have walked with Jesus. So I imagine their swag, you know, Peter and John, they're there, you know, and they're probably humble because they followed their master who was humble. But they're not like cowtown before these uh, council. They're not, oh, you are, you, man, you are like the richest people in town and you've got all the power and you've made all the laws and you're the people who rule the temple and wow, you know, we should be like in deference. They're, they're not doing that. They're not doing that. Cause yeah, in the world's eyes, maybe they were common. Maybe they were uneducated in a formal sense, but their education made them far beyond anything common. They were anything but common because they had sat at the feet of the greatest teacher of them all, Jesus himself. Yeah, maybe they weren't in some classroom somewhere. Maybe they didn't come from a means, but they had sat at the feet of Jesus himself and that was their very credential. And it shows us that grace levels the playing field. Grace, it levels the playing field when we're in the church. Um, You know, there's fancy words like justification. And, you know, if you've never heard of that, learn. It's good. Learn. But justification is basically our standing before God. A, a cool little word thing that you just justification is justified, fully obeyed. So when we're in Christ, justified, fully obeyed and justified, never sinned. Like it's basically, how does God look at us now when we are in Christ? That's what justification is. So we usually think about that vertically, like our relation with God. So when I'm in Christ, the way God looks at me, oh, now I'm, I'm, I'm his son. I'm his daughter. Well, I've been redeemed. I've been saved. I've been cleansed. And that's all true. That's all good. But justification also works horizontally. What it means, it's not just about how we are now in our status with God, but it's also our status with one another. Justification says when I am in Christ and you are in Christ, there's none of us that's better than anyone else. None of us are like a better grade Christian. None of us are, even if we've got all the credentials. And again, those things are not bad but we have to realize that justification equalizes us, levels the playing field uh, for all of us here. And that's why we love the Bible. That's why we love the Bible, because it's accessible to all peoples. Yeah, go to school if you've got the means. Study these things. But even if you don't, how cool is it that you got a Bible, and you can read it, and you can study it, it's in a language that you can understand. You don't need to learn some highfalutin language to be able to understand it like generations in the past had to. It's accessible for everyone. I remember one of my seminary professors sharing with us, and it was kind of early on. I think he was trying to humble us all because, you know, he's like, I know you all come into school and thinking you're going to get all this education, edumacation, and be able to teach everyone about the Bible and, you know, get all. You you need directness. I want to tell you about a lady in my church, and he was describing a woman in his church, an older woman. I think I remember she had a high school education, so it was not like formally educated, but she read the Bible through every three weeks. Yeah. Like she would read the Bible cover to cover. Like she, all she would do is immerse herself in the Bible every three weeks. She would, she would just keep starting up again to the point where like she knew the Bible. Like some of us know our star Wars quotes, you know, like that, that good. Some of us know our Star Wars and our, like, uh, Lord of the Rings much better than we know the Bible. It was, like, part of her. It was part of her life because she was just immersed in it. And it's just, I always think about that, that there's no prerequisite saying you need a certain level of education or means or resources. And all those things are helpful, but the grace of God says you all have access to this. Amen? That's real good news. That's really good news. And it gives boldness. It gives boldness to two fishermen. (laughs) Who can stand before everyone else and say, I know y'all got the education. I know y'all got the power. We've walked with Jesus. We've walked with Jesus. And when you have the word of God, you also can walk with Jesus. Jesus is described as the word. You have him right there. You can sit at his feet as well. So we see boldness because grace levels the playing field. We also, let me continue in verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. and We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So just really simply, we see that the disciples also have boldness because they have a proper sense of fear. They understand what fear is supposed to be. Um, So when we talk about fear, and we want to be very clear, we say the Bible casts out fear but there 's also a good thing called fear of the Lord, and we don 't like to talk about that because well, that doesn 't sound very modern that doesn 't I want a Jesus who like hugs me and like hangs out with me on Friday nights when i 'm lonely i don 't like a fear of the Lord. What is that like, puritanical weird like um, but one of the reasons we need to understand fear of the Lord is because many of us struggle with fear of man, and what fear of man is um, there 's a man Ed Welsh he just he defines it. I, I really like his definition he says people 's opinions, possible opinions attitudes or withholding of love become your master. Our fear of other people controls us. Basically fear of man is we derive who we are through the eyes of other people. The way we view our worth, the way we view our identity is through how do other people view us. And, and, you know, just very basically, if I look at myself, um, how do I see fear of man in my life? I preach this every week, right? I believe I'm not like faking you out. I believe this stuff. I believe that we have the message for eternal life. I believe that Jesus saves. I believe in a train wrecked, jacked up, messed up world that there is hope. And his name is Jesus. I believe there's all my heart. I've given my whole life to this. But when it comes to me sharing with a stranger on the street, I become like a little middle school kid all scared. And, like, oh man, but they're, they're going to think I'm one of those, like, wacko Christians, like those boycotting Disney kind of Christians. They're going to think I'm one of those. Or, man, they're going to think I'm one of those, like, Bible thumping, like, weirdos. And, oh man, or, or my, man, I can't talk to my neighbor about this. We got to look at each other, like, every day. This is going to get really awkward. What? What's he going to think about us? A- and as much as, and I, I don't think I'm fooling myself. I really believe this message. But what I see in my heart is that my fear of what other people think is often stronger than what I really believe God to be. And one of a great definition that we can look at what fear of the Lord is, fear of the Lord is living with the recognition that God sees what I'm doing. Basically that God is real. And living our life in a way where we believe God is real and he actually sees my life. And I think we see that described here in verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So, so the leaders, they're like, okay, well, well, here's your directive, okay? We can't do anything because we're going to get in trouble because everyone's liking you right now. But here's our word. You can go, and we'll be gracious. Just don't talk about this anymore. So they call them and charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. I love Peter and John's answer. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. Basically, Peter and John are saying, we're crushing our fear of man here because we hear what you're saying, but we believe God is so real, we got to listen to what he's saying. And his estimation is important to us. And we're not trying to disrespect you, but it's contrary to what God is saying. And he is our first one that we have to honor here. Because boldness comes as God continually grows more and more real to us. Fear of man is that people are bigger to us than God. That's what fear of man is. People, their opinions, their estimations, that's bigger, to us, that's bigger to us than God. Boldness comes when God grows more and more real to us. And God, when God's real to us, we become free not to fear other people, but to actually love them. Because when we fear people, we'll be afraid to say certain things because we wa- don't want them to look down on us. Maybe for some of us, it's that we've been afraid to talk to some people because we don't want to lose their love. We don't want to push away their affection. We don't want to be considered a loser in our workplace. We don't want to affect our possible ability to rise in our ranks. Whatever it might be, often fear of man is there. But when we uh, truly understand who God is, we say, yeah, that's all real. But I love these people too much to withhold from them. Because I love and I believe God. And if I believe that's real, how selfish of me to not share just because I'm afraid of what it's going to mean for me. And that's why at our church we try to talk and cultivate a big view of God. Because this is not about, come on, you chicken heart, come on, come on. This is about saying, no, no, let God get bigger and bigger. He's already big, but our eyes about him are small. Lord, give me bigger eyes for who you are so that everything has its proper perspective there. So we see boldness in terms of a fear of God rather than fear of man. We see further evidence of boldness after Peter and John are released. Let me read from verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them And now, Lord, look upon our threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What we see here, guys, notice how they pray. Verse 24, who do they address their prayers to? To the sovereign Lord. They're basically, they're saying, this is who we're praying to. We're praying to a God who's in control. He knows all. He's creator of all. They list off the things he's created. Verse 27 and 28 then, they're basically talking about the crucifixion. They're naming a couple of people. Herod, Pontius Pilate. what 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 Peter's trying to make really clear here is, guys, this message of what happened to Jesus on the cross. It wasn't that Jesus was just born and he was this nice cat who was just all around giving people holy hugs and giving people healings and just really full of the power of God. And oh, but man, he ran into this buzzsaw called the Jewish leaders who who didn't like the erasing of power from them. So they plotted to try to get rid of him. Oh man, and he was this innocent just man that, who got caught up in some. And, and people tried to twist. the the work of Jesus into kind of like a political overthrow kind of thing. And that's part of it. What Peter is making very clear here, yo, 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 you, you need to get this straight. None of this was unplanned. None of this was beyond the knowledge of God. He knew exactly what was going on. There was no Jesus kind of like oh what what cross what he knew and he would keep telling his followers right he kept telling them, yo I'm gonna have to die I'm gonna be raised again they never seemed to pick that part up though right but he made sure everyone knew this is what's gonna happen as bad as it looked for Peter and John in life I, I trust you it never looked worse than seeing their master die for John right in front of his eyes. I guarantee you, it didn't look as bad as the one you had followed for years, having his life taken away. It didn't look that bad. But what they're saying is here when it was that bad, we know now that God was in control. He's a sovereign God, He's providential, He's worked it all out. Even the stuff that makes you scratch your head and say, I, I can't take this anymore. And, and the believers, you, you got to get this. They're not just filled with boldness because they're extraordinarily brave. Sometimes we can read the Bible and say, man, and some of you who like comics, right? It's like, this is like a giant comic book, and these are like the heroes. Wow. Maybe someday I can have you like an Apostle Paul card because, you know, you, you know, and like we, we elevate these people as some, they're not more courageous or more bold than you and I by, by nature, but it's because they know God is in control. And I'll, I'll explain what that looks like for, for me and for our church here. If I didn't believe God is in control and he is sovereign, um, honestly, I I don't think I could keep doing what I'm doing here at the village. I I really couldn't. I'd have to like trade in my pastor card and say, yo, let me go drive a uh, truck somewhere. Maybe I I could do that. I can, I can, I'm strong. I can lift stuff. You know, let me do that because there's some mornings I wake up and I opened my email and it's just like, what? It's like, it's like tragedy after tragedy after tragedy and people going through the hardest of things and, and disease and financial calamity and relational breakups and stress and just a crisis of doubt and faith and people just saying, I don't even know if I believe anymore and people going through issues of abuse. And there's some days where I just throw my hands up and say, God, I, I can't do anything with this. Really? I, I, I this, is way, this is way beyond my pay grade. This is way beyond my capacity. I cannot handle that. And, and in God's loving kindness, I almost feel like he like pats me on this. Oh, cute little pastor. Oh, caring for your people. Oh, that's good. That's, that's, cute. that's cute. Keep praying. for. That. That's, that's good. I got this. I got this. Because when we read throughout the scriptures, and I would encourage you to do that. It's all open source. It's all good stuff. Read to the end because the end tells us. God wins. The end tells us God's in control. The end tells us as jacked up as this world might sometimes be like yesterday, God still knows. As there are certain things that just blow your mind and say, if there's a good God, how could this kind of evil happen? And I'm not saying I know all the answers. I mean, we got a lot smarter people in this room. Talk to them. I I just preach, right? Um, I I can't explain exactly what that looks like, but the only thing I can say is I trust that God is in control. He's not the author of evil, but in his power, he will even use evil things for his own glory. And we might never know of it until we're on the other end of glory. (laughs) I know that's not comforting. Some of you, well, are you going to give me the answer in three weeks? Yeah, stay tuned. Come back for the three-week sermon on how we show how God's sovereignty exactly. I don't know. We might never know until we're on the other side of glory. And I know that doesn't go with American evangelicalism, where we think we need every answer right now. We might never know fully. But what we can put our hope in is that even the worst things that you and I go through as followers of Christ are not beyond the grace of God. Amen. God is in control. He sees. He knows. He loves. Because the things that scare you and me don't scare Jesus. The things that make you and me rock in our shoes and think I have no hope. Jesus doesn't laugh at them because he cares for us. But he's like, I got this. I got this. The things that make you and me and say, you and me say, I, I can't even go on. Jesus says, trust me. I got this. So all these examples of boldness are great and inspiring. But I think it's really important for us to know that these bold people, especially Peter, we have to know where they're coming from. Because it, and maybe for some of you, this is a new story. It's the first time you're hearing it. It would be easy for you to think that this is, like, an example of, of this great guy, Peter. Man, this guy must, like, he must be, like, if there's, like, a hall of fame in the Bible, he must be, like, top five. Like, you know, look at him just preaching out in the middle of nowhere and 3,000 people going to 5,000. You know, wow, this is, like, a, man, God must think he's, like, give him, like, the honor roll or something when it comes to Jesus, right? Um, but you need to know where he's coming from because he's an example, yeah? But, but that would be an incomplete picture because you need to know he wasn't always so bold, Mark chapter 14, we give a little glimpse of how he was before. This is right before Jesus was, um, after he was arrested and before he was crucified. It says, verse 66, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know or understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He broke down and wept. (sighs) Peter wasn't always so bold. In fact, he was still a scaredy cat. Little girl asking him, Yeah, you know Jesus, I saw you. I don't even know who you're talking about. Three times, three different times given the opportunity. And that's why it's astounding to see what we read earlier in Acts chapter four, starting verse seven. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? That this Peter, who at one point, not that long before this, was shaking his boots. And people were saying, "You yeah, you, you walked with Jesus, right? You know who he is, Jesus. I don't even know who he is. Don't, don't bring that. I don't know who he is. And now, proclaiming boldly, you want to know how all this happened? It's by one name alone, Jesus And just proclaim, Jesus! He goes from not being able to even say his name. Do you notice when he was denied, he couldn't even say his name? To now, Jesus! And just proclaiming hard. How does grace make us bold? I imagine as Peter and John, but Peter especially as he's standing before this council. It's almost like a trial, right? He's almost standing under trial before these guys. And and they're trying to see if he's guilty or not. But you need to know Peter. Peter, he knows he's already stood under a judge. I know all these guys got power here and they could probably determine something really big. But you need to know, I've already sat under a judge. I've sat under a judge named the Holy God who has seen me deny my Savior to his face over and over and over again. And has just totally denied. And I walked with this man for three years. And I, I ate with him. I, I rested with him. I played with him. We ministered together. I saw all of his power. I saw all the miracles. I saw all the healings. I saw all the teachings. I, I saw all that. And yet, when it came down to crunch time, I still denied him. And in a just world, um, God the judge would say, <laughs> You got no case homes. <laughs> Joe, we got a place in Hades for you, right? There's this nice called Peters place in Hades. You're over there now. You denied the savior. I mean, you, you don't have an excuse. You even, you even acknowledged that he was the Messiah a couple chapters ahead in biblical times. That's a lot, right? A couple chapters. You even acknowledge that he's the Messiah. And yet you denied him when it was crunch time. <laughs> Dude, you deserve judgment. But in the midst of judgment that he knew he deserved, what did he get? He got a savior who stood in his place. He knows a God who's seen him at his very worst, very worst. He has no one that needs to tell him he is absolutely deserving of his guilt. He knows it for sure. And though he's deservingly guilty, he has been called righteous by God because of Jesus. That rather than taking on his own sin and the penalty deserving of that, Jesus has taken his place and he went to the cross. So you need to know that. So when Peter's standing before this council, all big and mighty and like, yo, you'll be scared of us. He's like, I have already stood before God. I stood before God in all of my sin, all of my deserving shame. I should be punished, but God has given me life and he's restored me. I don't fear you. And like Peter, when we fathom that there's a God who knows absolutely everything about us, even the worst stuff, even the stuff that you come to church week after week, trying really hard to try to cover up trying to get really holy moly. And the people around here, don't think you're a different person. Oh, you, you must be all that stuff. God knows all of that. And yet he still loves us. What is there left to fear? What is there left to fear? This is the kind of grace that makes us bold, but it's also a boldness. That's never arrogant. Cause there's a lot of, there's a lot of boldness in some Christians. All you need to do is go on like Facebook, right? There's a, there's a lot of air, bold Christians, a lot of arrogance though. The kind of boldness we're talking about here, it's like solid in Christ, but it's also humble because you know it's not about you. You know it's not because you've been good. You know it's because God is good. So that makes you bold, yet it makes you humble. And again, the things that scare you don't scare Jesus, including you and your brokenness some of you, you got some stuff still in your life, still in your baggage, still in your memories. Maybe it's last night. You still got some stuff that the enemy taunts you. And if you're a child of God still taunts you says, look, see right there, there's no way God could love you. You are fooling yourself going to this church, talking grace, grace, grace. There's not enough grace for that. Are you serious? Don't, don't play God like that. And, and you need to hear very, very clearly. You cannot out God's grace. You cannot out God's grace. I'm not saying don't play with God, though, because you thinking that you're in grace might be you just ignoring God. I'm not saying if that's you, you need to be right with yourself and ask, do I genuinely know God? But if you do know God, if you have received salvation in him, you knew that you have confessed you are a brutal sinner. Yet God stood in your way, Christ stood in your place on a cross and you've received that you can never out the grace of God. You can't. And some of you, you're probably real good sinners. You might even be able to match up with me, but I've learned through my 40 plus years. I cannot out the grace of God. God knows there have been times I've tried. I cannot. I'm not that good. Because grace teaches us that through the cross, Jesus purchased for us a life that we could never earn on our own merit. Grace says that what Jesus accomplished is fully sufficient to make us right with God and before others in boldness. You don't need to stand ashamed shame before other people. You need, need to look at yourself and say, I'm somewhat less than as a Christian. Because what Christ does, he stands in our place and says, it's sufficient. It's finished. So I want to invite you in, in that heart, just for some of you, I think your bondage is to the approval and acceptance of other people. And I know we could go a lot of different directions, but I think for a lot of us, our bondage is to the approval and acceptance of others we fear so much how we're viewed. We fear so much how we're considered. But when you know that God sees you and God knows you, you can be be set free from looking to other people for your worth. Amen? When you know that God sees and he knows, even the crud, yet he says, hey, you're mine, you can be freed from having to look to other people to try to fill that place. God sets you free from fearing others so that you can actually be free to love them them instead. So can you close your eyes with me? And just, I want to, we're going to go into baptism, but I want to give you a moment to just pray. And again, I don't know what's brought you here today, whether it's to worship God or support a friend or just you're curious and that's all, all great. But I think wisdom would be for you to say first, do I really know who God is? Um, One of the things about living in fear of the Lord, it's not meant to be a scary thing. For those who are in Christ, fear of the Lord is knowing he knows everything about me. But wow, that's amazing. That's comforting. That's loving. If you don't know God, though, knowing that he knows everything about you is not the most comforting thing in the world without Christ. And let me ask you, just take that for a moment right now. We're going to hear some great stories of how God's worked in some people's lives. But what I want you to know is this story is not just for these great people up here, but this is for you as well. Do you live in fear of what people think about you? Has it caused you to make some really poor choices in life even? God wants to free you from that. So let me pray for us for a moment, and you can quietly think that as well. Lord, We pray as we think on your word and the good news. Thank you, Lord, that for some of us, good news is so good because we've lived bad news. We've lived trying to uh, be approved by other people. Lord, for some of us, the reason good news is so good is because we have tried to be acceptable to our standards, people's standards, and we've always fallen short. And yet we encountered a Savior who knew us when we had fallen short and still said he loved us and took our sin upon himself that's why we love you jesus i pray in this room even right now lord would you let that message speak to some of us that need to hear it that we would receive you and follow you lord and grow bold not just so we can develop some self-esteem but so we can be bold for the for sake of god so we love you lord we thank you in jesus name we pray amen